Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we're talking about eyeball reform, phase two. Oh my God, it sounds exciting. There was already a phase one and we've moved on to phase two already. And I'm joined by not one, not two, but by three geniuses because it's that complicated. So I've got Marie Kling, I've got Mark Randall and I've got Chris Raptopoulos with me as well. So welcome to the studio. Everyone's been here before. Welcome back. We're not in a studio. We're in our houses, but we'll pretend we're all together. OK, so let's get started with eyeball reform phase two. So in August 2020, the ISB concluded their eyeball reform project and they issued these phase two amendments. Anything like me, you might not remember the phase one amendments, but we'll get to that. So the amendments that they put through, they impact loads of standards. So you've got IFRS 9 and IS 39, you've got IFRS 4, the insurance, and you've got leases and disclosures as well in IFRS 7. But before we get into the detail there, let's backtrack a little bit and just remind ourselves what is eyeball reform. So Chris, I'm going to come to you first of all. Can you tell us very high level, what is eyeball reform? Hi, Ruth. I'd be pleased to. So as a reminder, following the financial crisis, there were calls to reform the process used to price LIBOR due to the way that the rate historically was developed. It uh, required professional judgment by contributing banks and wasn't based off transactional data. So there was a huge potential for manipulation in the rate setting process, which the regulators have sought to address by reforming the way LIBOR has been calculated since. And now they're encouraging the market towards new reference rates. These new reference rates differ by region, currency, tenor, and basis. And LIBOR differs significantly from these new reference rates, making the transition especially complicated for those exhaust, uh, those organizations exposed to more than one new reference rate. So LIBOR is a forward-looking term rate with several maturities after about a year. And the new reference rates are backward-looking overnight rates. And the rates won't be the same as existing LIBORs, and therefore counterparties won't be able to simply find and replace liable with these new reference rates. So with, as with any market-driven changes, there still remains a lot of uncertainty around the timing and precise nature of the impacts of some of these changes. And the impacts of these reforms go beyond accounting. They tax systems, legal impacts. And so it's really important for listeners to work out how these impact, how these changes impact their organizations and for multidisciplinary teams to appropriately address these reform changes. Wow, so it goes beyond accounting. I think we're going to come back to you at the end, Chris, as well, to hear about some of the things companies should be doing. But we're saying goodbye to Ibor and hello, new reference rate. Mark, if I maybe turn to you now, why were there IFRS amendments needed for all of this and what did phase one amendments cover? Sure. So the, the phase one amendments that the ISB put out a year ago for IFRS were focused around hedge accounting. And really what they sought to do was to avoid the potential choppy waters and the uncertainties that the transition from the from one rate to another, to avoid any that uncertainty impacting on hedge accounting and causing 
in its most extreme sense, hedges to stop and terminate because that can lead to nasty consequences. And the reason for that is the ISB didn't feel it kind of reflected the economics if hedge accounting had to stop because of this kind of market-wide change. So they gave relief effectively allowed you to disregard that uncertainty, pretend the future didn't have that in it and it was all fine. And so you could carry on. And that was that's fine until you actually start making changes to contracts. And that's when phase two picked up the baton, as it were. Okay, so Marie, who's going to be this phase two, the exciting new amendments that come in, who's going to be impacted by them? Yeah, great question, Ruth. So again, because IBOR-based contracts are quite pervasive, really the amendments um, could affect companies in all industries. Now, I acknowledge that financial institutions probably are the most significantly impacted um, by those amendments and the reform in general, but corporate entities as well will be impacted. For example, if a corporate issued IBOR-based bank debt, or even if it's fixed rate debt, and there's a swap that converts it back into an IBOR-based variable funding, those corporate could be impacted as well. So so really it's everybody, but probably more significantly financial institutions. Great. So if you're listening and you're not a bank, you're a corporate, don't turn off. It impacts you too. It's important. So I'm probably going to get this wrong now, Marie, but I understand from my brief understanding of phase two, there's two key reliefs. One around changes to contractual cash flows that are required by IBOR reform and then hedge accounting. So maybe we start with the first one. So the changes around contractual cash flow relief. Yeah, let's let's start with the easy parts. So changes oh, wow. to the is that easy. <laughs> it doesn't sound it. <laughs> changes to the basis for determining the contractual cash flows. But maybe before I, I, I kind of cover what that relief actually is about, is just quick reminder on scope. So the amendments that the ISB issued to be in the scope of those amendments, there's two conditions that have to be met. So the changes are required by benchmark reform, and there's two conditions. The change is necessary as a direct consequence of benchmark reform, and the new basis for determining those contractual cash flows has to be equivalent to the old basis. So those are your two conditions to kind of get into the game or be in scope of the amendments. Now, the relief itself is not limited to any particular way of implementing the reform, as long as it's kind of part of a market-wide reform and kind of follows the recommendations that the uh, Financial Stability Board issued back in 2014. So what are examples? Well, it could be like just replacing one benchmark with a different one. It could be amending the spread to take into account the different risk profile of the new benchmark. Could also be changes to interest rate reset periods, for example, and adding fallback provisions that kind of explain how you move from point A to point B would be one way of affecting the changes. Now, the other condition is sort of this concept of economic equivalence, and you're probably wondering what does that mean? The amendments don't have a lot of detailed application guidance there, and, and that's on purpose because the concept is intended to be principles based. So that's the scope. Then in terms of the nature of the relief, again, it, it covers changes to the basis for determining the contractual cash flow. So it applies to your financial assets and liabilities, but also to leases from the lessee's perspective. 
And really what the amendments or the relief is about is ensuring that entities, it requires entities to update the effective interest rate for those changes. So really it's akin to the accounting we typically follow for movements in market rates. And what it does is it avoids a recognition of an immediate gain or loss and also does not result in an adjustment to the carrying amount. Now you have to be careful though, there's changes that are made in addition to the one that are required by benchmark reform. Those changes would not be eligible for the relief. Um, so what would an entity have to do? Well, it would have to first update the effective interest rate for the changes that are required by the reform and then apply your typical IFRS 9 accounting to the other changes. So determining whether IFD recognition applies and if not, apply modification accounting. So again, one warning, be careful with all the changes. Um, the relief only applies to the one that is required by benchmark reform. The second piece is leases. So again, there's a, a similar relief that applies to lessees under IFRS 16. So that standard was also amended, sorry, to use a similar practical expedient when accounting for those lease modifications. There's one difference though, if there's changes in addition to the, to the ones acquired by benchmark reform, then this two-step approach that I just mentioned for financial instruments is actually not applicable. So if there are modifications in additions to the one required by the reform, then you'd have to follow the IFRS 16 requirement and, and account for those as lease modifications. And my last point, Ruth, last but not least, the relief for financial instruments that applies to insurers as well, even though you're still applying IS 39. So similar relief for the insurers out there. And you said that was the easy one, Marie. Oh, my word. I'd hate to see it. <laughs> something that's difficult, but let's go on to it. So moving on to hedge accounting relief. Score, Mark, you've got the tricky one. <laughs> oh, I, I guess just to manage expertise, I'm not going to try and cover everything in this book, I guess. We've we'll only got 20 some minutes. The, some of the key <laughs> messages, Ruth, that I want your will to live to, to get through this podcast. So I guess kind of what, what what's the purpose of, of the reliefs around hedge accounting is basically to make sure that eyeball reform of itself doesn't cause problems for hedges and they can carry on. But I guess equally what that doesn't mean is that you if there's real ineffectiveness because something's happening to let's say your loan borrowing that isn't happening on derivative you can't account for the sort of the hedge relationship you wish you had if there's genuine differences in ineffectiveness then that needs to be reported in the income statement and will come through as volatility so it's not entirely a magic wand that, that makes everything disappear you can't dodge reality and similar to the relief Marie was describing there's also these criteria you need to be in to be able to apply the relief so it's not a free pass and so just so like those other reliefs the two criteria you need to make sure you're meeting is one that the changes being made are necessarily as a result of viable reform and secondly they're done on an economic equivalent basis so the isb were very keen when they set this up that they weren't opening the door for a complete free-for-all um, and changes but if your heart's in the right place and you're doing the your changes for the, for the right motivation then you'll be in these reliefs so that's kind of what you need to do to get in them kind of what do they actually allow you to do well big picture they allow you to go into your hedge documentation and make changes and ordinarily you cannot do that and so the fact that the loan might change that the derivative might change is really good news that you can mirror that in your hedge documentation as you go through time and as those changes happen and basically speaking you need to make those changes in your documentation by the end of the period in which they've in which they've occurred and you need to update your documentation which is broadly speaking when the 
phase one reliefs that previously sheltered you when they drop away because you've no longer got uncertainty. So as an example, if you had uncertainty around your hedge risk, once that goes away, you then got to update your hedge risk in your documentation. But by but in practice, that shouldn't be too difficult unless you've got huge volumes because kind of you're into the new world and things should be simpler then. I guess that that does raise a question when you're making those changes in your to your hedge and your documentation. Should you expect kind of surprises, big gains or losses? Well, kind of we're still going through the detail, but in principle, you wouldn't really expect that at all. And really, one of the key reasons is that to be in these reliefs, the stuff needed to be on an economically equivalent basis after compared to what it was before. So if you can say that on the one hand, but also having big gains or losses, that you really feel like you're missing something. So we wouldn't be expecting that. But equally, there might be some noise as you're going through and understanding what will happen in the real world, how that will be mirrored in the accounting, um, and what, if anything, might be hidden the PL or something to be looking at. I guess as lastly, as ever, there'll be some judgments in these reliefs and, and quite what they mean. But also there are there are some decisions to be made. So the first is under IS39, when you're seeing whether your hedge passes or fails, often you look at the cumulative movements in fair value on your hedged item or on the hedging instrument. You've got an option to reset those movements to zero and not look back right to the very start of the hedge. The ISB put that in there. So if there's some choppy waters and it, it makes your life easier by resetting to zero, then you can do that. And then also, without getting into more detail, when you're doing a fair value hedge of, let's say, a fixed rate debt instrument, you need to be able to peer into that instrument and say that there's a risk component that moves dependent on an eyeball or its replacement. And ordinarily, you need to be able to see that right from the start. There's a, a relief that says you can designate a hedge of a, like the replacement interest rate when it's not yet um, separately identifiable, but just as long as you think it will be in 24 months' time. There's a bit of a question there about how confident are you that markets will move and they will start pricing assets off of the new rates. But that's intended to kind of ease the way so you can update your hedges uh, in anticipation of markets and you don't need to hold off and sort of delay moving into the new world of the alternative rates. So overall, it's good news. As ever, there's some detail to work through. Two things I found very exciting in that, Mark. One, I can oh, go and maybe. change my hedging documentation if I have any hedges personally, but I feel like that's an exciting thing. And <laughs> two, I loved your, we're going to peer into the instruments, like we're peering into the crystal ball of the future. But they were, they were my two favourite bits. Thank you. Glad when, your day. <laughs> <laughs> when, when do they apply? When can I get going? What are the transition provisions? If you are really keen and eager, which it sounds okay. as though you are, you can early adopt and you could apply them now. So if you're a, a December year end, you could apply them in your 2020 December accounts. In reality, from what I'm hearing, most people are saying we really don't anticipate amending any material amount of contracts this year and therefore we actually don't need this relief so in reality we'll probably adopt it sort of on its mandatory timing which is for periods beginning after one or after one jan 21 but yeah when, when you then do apply it it is retrospective so maybe a third source of excitement review if you had some hedges that died in 2020 because of eyeball uncertainty they get resurrected next year in your comparatives wow. yes which is relatively unusual but equally 
I guess a couple of thoughts. Firstly, if they died in 2020, but you then use that swap in a new hedge, then you don't need to erase that and go right back. The, the ISB listened to feedback they got on their draft proposals. And so you would kind of leave that new hedge in situ. But also, frankly, if you had any hedges blowing up this year, then I don't know why you wouldn't just go and early adopt in this current year rather than going through the complexity of blowing up the hedges and the, cons the, the resulting accounting entries in 2020 and then in 2021 going back, erasing them and accounting for it as though the hedge had already been there. I think you would just apply the release straight away, stop the hedge from being blown up and, and get on with your life <laughs> to summarise. So in practice, I don't think that, that that will be happening. I've certainly not heard clients who are seeing problems right now and will then need to reinstate. To summarise, get on with your life. <laughs> oh, but yeah, it's a good mantra. It walks of life beyond eyeball accounting. But yes, <laughs> I'm going to use it today. And lastly, because I think we have talked so much already about eyeball. Coming back to you, Chris. We started with you. We'll end with you. What do companies do now? The key bit. So at the moment, we're urging our clients to take stock and ensure that they have a. Have, that they've communicated the impact of LIBOR reform to their boards with a clear plan of action. I think it's prudent to show that the risks and opportunities have been considered, and we expect more boards to start asking questions, as will investors, bankers, and other stakeholders, especially as the regulators and working groups increase their outreach efforts. Practically, the starting point is gaining visibility of all LIBOR-related exposures, especially those contracts that reference LIBOR, to assess whether these need to be renegotiated or whether the fallback arrangements within them are suitable. With this visibility, transition activities can then be prioritized for those contracts, processes, and systems in most urgent need of attention to allow time to determine the right strategy and timing for renegotiation or re remediation. This should include clarifying the potential legal, accounting, and tax outcomes especially for hedging derivatives or financial contracts that require terms to be modified. But it will also be important to ensure that the organization is operationally ready for the specifics of the DE's new reference rates. And here I'm particularly referring to the system-related considerations. In this regard, I think it's important for listeners to familiarize themselves with the methodological and economic differences between LIBOR and the new reference rates, where the calculation of interest rates can be much more complicated than anything LIBOR users will have historically been used to. Finally, I think it's as important to ensure that the direct impacts are modeled and communicated. I think this is particularly helpful for boards, but also investors as they seek to understand whether LIBOR reform will impact their understanding of our listeners' businesses. Brilliant. Thank you, Chris. So key there, plan of action and good communication to the board and the investors as well. So lots for everybody to think about. I'm going to put you all on the spot. Is there, have we got some documents out there for people to read on this stuff? We must have. Oh, we absolutely do. Just quickly from an, an understanding libel perspective, we have a website dedicated to that just, just go to the PwC website or type PwC LIBOR and you'll, you'll, you'll get more. From a corporate perspective, we've got a LIBOR assessment diagnostic that will, will help those corporates that haven't yet made the necessary steps to, to, to get started with their reform projects. It's available at liborassessment.pwc.co.uk and it's freely available, no cost. Take a look there and get your project started. 
Wow. Okay. So we've got a whole website and an assessment tool. I will try and remember to put that into the wording on our website as well. So thank you so much, everybody, for coming and taking us through Ibor phase two. I don't think there's going to be a phase three. So we won't be coming back on this particular topic, but you can always come back and speak to me about other things. So thank you for joining us. And listeners, thank you for listening in. Stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.